we all basically came to the conclusion that one, we were unimaginably excited to find other black women that were shark scientists. <laughs> like we all, we were all just like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe this. Like, oh. We also concluded that we wanted to change that. We were like, we don't want to always feel, we didn't want to always feel alone. We experienced what it feels like to be alone in, a, in this field and also what it feels like to find someone else who looks like you, who probably shares similar experiences with you, which was super exciting. Welcome to the Sustainable Jungle podcast. I'm Joy, and today Lyle and I are talking with Carly Jackson, a shark scientist originally from Detroit, Michigan in the US. Carly has recently completed her master's thesis on the effects of tourism on nurse sharks. She is also a marine turtle specialist at Gumbo Limbo Nature Center in Florida, and together with three other black women, founded MISS, which stands for Minorities in Shark Sciences and serves to create an equitable path to shark science for historically excluded women like them. They strive to be role models for the next generation and actively promote diversity through meaningfully supporting young future scientists of color. We cover all of this fascinating and important work and much more. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode, including all of the relevant links over at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. Now let's talk sharks and diversity with Carly Jackson. Hello, Carly. We are thrilled to welcome you to the show. Let's start with you. Where were you born and where did you grow up? Hey, I'm so excited to be here. So I was born in uh, Michigan. So I'm in the United States. I know you guys are in Australia. <laughs> um, I'm, so I was born in Michigan. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, a big city there, and um, later moved a little outside of Detroit after I went to high school and everything. But yeah, so I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, city girl. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I was thinking we, we don't know, like we don't personally know much about Detroit except for what we've seen in movies. But I, right. <laughs> I imagine that that access to nature was not super ubiquitous there. How did you first become no. interested in conservation? Yeah, so we are the like where Michigan has the Great Lakes and you know like they're really cool, but you know there's no sharks there. But <laughs> I was so I was homeschooled by my mom uh, from about first grade till high school. And we were at a book fair, and I just remember seeing this book on sharks. Literally, have no idea why, but I was just like, I need to read this book. <laughs> so I begged my mom to get this book for me, and I read it, and I was just hooked on sharks and just the ocean in general. It was just the weirdest thing That's my parents weird. were just like, Yeah, my parents were like, All right, like, all right, go ahead, do what you do. Because I come from a very non science or non like nature y family. My mom's a musician, my dad's a lawyer. So they're kind of like, All right, let's let's see where this goes. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and I actually, my grandparents would take us camping all the time, like probably a solid like five plus times a year. I'd go camping with them, we'd go fishing and everything. And like, when I was super younger, I didn't like like the nature outside. I didn't like to be dirty. But as I got older, <laughs> I was like, you know what? I like this. I like being outside and everything. But um, yeah, so the ocean stuff was definitely more books. Like I would interact with the ocean through the books or through like nature uh, documentaries and things like that on uh, on TV. So that's amazing. You were just a, a kindred spirit with sharks from 
right from the minute you saw one. Exactly. It was yeah, love at first sight. There you go. <laughs> so, so Connie, can I ask? Did you um did you have like many beach holidays though growing up, where you got to go and swim in the sea and stuff? No, I think my first time swimming in the ocean was. I think my brother was born, so I had to have been around seven or eight. Wow. And um, I was in California for a family reunion. And I just remember the water was very cold. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's really all I remember. But the first time I really went snorkeling in the ocean, I think I was probably 14 or 15, uh, maybe even older than that. But yeah, I didn't really have my... In any real ocean experiences till my late teenage years so that's incredible and do you remember the first time you saw a shark in real life yes that was I was in college actually and I went to a university near the ocean and of uh, we went snor I went snorkeling with some friends and I saw this nurse shark sitting up under a rock oh my gosh I was like it's a shark I thought it was a cool <laughs> thing it was it's a little nurse shark you know like they're not super sharky looking sharks but it still yeah. was the cutest thing i'd ever seen i was like oh i love them <laughs> they are really majestic aren't they i mean lal and i've been fortunate to do our diving certification and we we, we dove 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 dived yeah dived with uh <laughs> either one yeah, yeah. whatever works yeah. Um, we dived with them in where did where was it? Oh, in South Africa? Did we do it in off the coast of? Yeah, we so, did it in, in Sedwana Bay, Mo Mozambique, in South Africa. Yeah. Oh, and we, so nice. And that that presence that you feel when they're around is like quite. It's like this mixture between like awe and and a little bit of fear. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I feel like when you first see a shark, you become. You get so much more respect for the animals because yes. <laughs> it's like yeah. this thing can, you know, like they could attack you if they wanted to, but they're not going to because they're not interested in you. Yeah. <laughs> they're just like, just beautiful to, uh, I love them. <laughs> they really are stunning. We, uh, we, we snorkeled off the coast of um, Australia, actually, like the, on the west side, north of Perth. Mm -hmm. And there, there's a, this Ningaloo Reef where you can actually, um, there's this amazing setup on the reef where you can actually snorkel and there's like a little bit of a drift and you can like float down the down okay, the coast like a little a bit drift snorkel yeah mm -hmm. which is i've never done one of those before it was amazing and <laughs> there's just like these little what are they like black black tips they were black tips black yeah tips. little black mm. tips like which were quite small but um still like you know had a presence <laughs> and they were just right, like watching yeah. us the whole time and you know when you like <laughs> when you feel like you're being watched and then you turn around yes. and you're like oh my gosh okay there's a, a shark watching there's a shark me, watching me. <laughs> yeah your heart starts beating and you're like oh no i read that they can tell when your heart's beating fast right <laughs> <laughs> yeah so t tell us a little bit more about your academic career i understand that you, you then studied in florida yeah, so I went from Michigan to Florida. I already told my parents at an early age, I am going to be going to college where there's an ocean. So you can come <laughs> visit me if you want. <laughs> but um, I went to Florida Atlantic University. It's in this town called Boca Raton, Florida. So it's just South Florida, like in the Fort Lauderdale, Miami area, um, north of that. And I completed my bachelor's degree there. And my last semester, I was also a uh, athlete. So I was a swimmer. So I was recruited to swim there. So the first couple years, I actually didn't really have a lot of 
research experience or like field experience or anything like that because I was kind of chained to the NCAA. (laughs) So um, my last semester, I did this program called Semester at the Sea, and it was a fully immersive field. Like the whole semester was in the field doing field work and every single class was based in the field. I had to actually move to a campus. Um, We had a separate campus campus that was on the water specifically for marine biology and it was I after that I was like I know this is exactly what I'm supposed to do this is exactly what I want to do (laughs) um so yeah so after that I went I took a year off in between undergrad and graduate school so I went to graduate school at Nova Southeastern University and there I picked up a project in Belize Uh, And my thesis focused on the effects of provisioning tourism on nurse sharks in Belize. So I went to Belize for two months, actually, uh, almost, yeah, it was about exactly a year ago uh, from this time. So I went July through September of last year. And there I just did a bunch of field work. I was in the water every single day. (laughs) So with sharks about every day. (laughs) Nurse sharks, but still sharks. Uh, But yeah, and I actually just defended my thesis last week. So I'm done with grad school. That was, I can't say it was fun, but it was, you know, (laughs) it was, I I got a lot from it. (laughs) But um, yeah, so yeah, but that's about up to speed on my academic career right now. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's a lot. And I also read that you, that there was turtles in the mix or somewhere along the line too. Yes, yes. So I am a marine turtle specialist at a place called Gumbo Limbo Nature Center. So it's, it's a type of tree. It's a funny sounding name, but it's a type of tree and they're like all over our uh, nature center. So there, I, I've actually been working there for about three years now and I survey our beaches for turtle nests. And I also help in our sea turtle rehab uh, hospital. So sea turtles here they we get three different species loggerhead leatherback and green sea turtles they nest from march to october during the year and uh during that time me and my team go out and we mark the nests so we our beaches are pretty popular so we have to like put signs up and put stakes around them put barriers around the nest so that no one steps on them or things like that so do you do the releasing as well because those little turtles are the cutest things ever (laughs) yes yes we do hatchling (laughs) releases we do uh releases with our citro our rehab turtles so we nurse them back to health and do a big release for them usually we'll go out on the beach and just release them on the beach right there so that's pretty fun so it's a pretty it's a fun job I love that that is like the (laughs) that is the dream job I once did a turtle release like when I we did had like a work conference in my oh no where was it in Mexico and we did that was like one of the fun activities was to do like the turtle releasing and I was like I'm quitting I'm quitting this world (laughs) I am becoming a turtle releaser for my world and and you and you do that that is like the dream job of the world I think (laughs) yeah it is pretty fun they're super cute they are wow so a joint a joint shared love of turtles and sharks but sharks are clearly the winner there sounds yeah sharks are the winner turtles are very near to my heart though <laughs> <laughs> and going back to sharks we uh, we watched your video on facebook for frontier beliefs and you mentioned yes. that one of your favorite moments was swimming with the the great hammerhead um, which sounds yes. very cool could you tell us more about that experience 
Yes. Oh my goodness. So this was while I was doing some surveys in my study site. So we were in about like five to six feet of water. Like this is a seagrass area, um, bunch of nurse sharks and stingrays around. And all of a sudden my boat captain, he yells like hammerhead and points. And I'm like, all right. So I swim towards where he's pointing opposite of what some people probably would do. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm swimming. And then all of a sudden I look underwater and this thing kind of cuts me off from the group. And she was probably about like, anywhere between two and a half to three meters maybe maybe two to three meters and she she was just cruising like she just we locked eyes and my heart stopped and I was like (laughs) you know you catch your breath and you're like oh oh my gosh like it was just me and this giant animal in the water (laughs) but it was it's my favorite experience because that was my first time with a really big shark in the water and I was kind of by myself and it was like Oh my goodness. It was like, this thing could easily just turn around and take a little bite out of me if it wanted to. But like I said, that's kind of where you start getting the respect. Like they don't, they just want to check you out. Like she was just checking us out. Like what's, what's going on? But yeah, she, it was just beautiful. And they're so bizarre looking. Like, did you have this surreal, like, what are you? Like we feel. Yes. Like their little eyes on the end. I'm like, what? Is yeah. This? Oh. They're so weird looking. <laughs> yeah, hammerheads in particular, hey, they are bizarre. They are. And then they all, with their, even though their mouth is really small, I don't know, it's, it's they they look pretty scary because they're just, they look like little aliens. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but they're still like beautiful at the same time because they're, to me, the most beautiful feature on a hammerhead or a great hammerhead specifically is their dorsal fin. Their dorsal mm-hmm. fin is gigantic. Like it's probably about as probably larger than the width of their like the what is it the depth of their body. Um, so it's just a, usually if you see a huge huge dorsal fin, that's a great hammerhead. Okay. <laughs> They're very specific to characteristic of uh, great hammers. So that dorsal fin was very pretty. <laughs> wow, I can imagine. And I've seen like some docos um, with I don't know if it's great hammerheads, but I, it's some type of hammerhead where they swim with thousands uh those are the scalloped the scalloped hammerheads yeah <laughs> yeah they do those big migrations and i think the galapagos yeah the galapagos um they yeah they just sharks for miles you can't even all you see are sharks i've never that's one that, that's on my bucket list yeah i bet, it, I bet it's on uh, your bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, can't, I can't say the same but maybe <laughs> let us know funny. how it goes <laughs> Definitely will. Definitely I've will. just Googled a great hammerhead. Yeah, I can see the dorsal fin look low. Yeah, yeah. wow. That's, that's massive. It's, yeah. It's like, yeah, you're right. It's Beautiful. as tall as the whole body is. Um, yeah. Um, Collie, so I just want to quickly uh, focus on your research specifically. But before we get into it, just generally speaking, I think most people who love nature are aware that shock populations around the world are, are suffering for all sorts of reasons, not least because people are still eating them or their fins what are your general perspectives on shark conservation globally like are we doing enough where do we need to go from here basically yeah so there's like you said there's just a whole bunch of different um stressors and pressures on sharks and it's not even necessarily just people eating them because you know it's it's a fish and if you sustainably uh catch them 
it's definitely you can definitely sustainably have like a shark fishery it's been done and it's um definitely it works but there's a whole lot of issues with the fishing and the um bycatch bycatch is a huge issue and the just commercial fishing in general but overall i think and from what i've read we are experiencing a huge decline in um populations all over the world and it's it's hard because some sharks are fine like some species of sharks are doing good but then there's some species of sharks that aren't and then there's a whole bunch of species of sharks that we just have no idea really <laughs> how they're doing i think it's about i think like 47 percent of shark species are listed as data deficient on iucn um and then 30 percent are endangered or critically endangered things uh, the different levels of endangered um but moving forward some of the best success in shark conservation in certain areas comes with marine reserves. So a lot of different marine reserves or shark sanctuaries. It's an area where no fishing is allowed, uh, no like taking of things is allowed, like nothing is allowed basically in that area besides just drove, driving your boat through right. <laughs> or sometimes uh, snorkeling or some non-consumptive recreational activities. But they, areas like that, they produce more fish, which in turn is more food for the sharks. So the sharks are probably going to stick around in that area, which also means they're not going to get fished in that area as well. So I think uh, from my perspective, marine reserves really do a lot for sharks in general. Um, I'm not super familiar with a lot of policy internationally. Um, I am trying to properly educate myself on that as I... <laughs> continue like educating others, but definitely marine reserves and shark sanctuaries are uh, very, are definitely things that we can do to help our shark populations. Um, and also politics, like if you are voting, I know here in America, voting is coming up and a lot of people um, or a lot of candidates, you know, have certain views or certain legislation on uh, different fishing practices or fishing policies and shark policies as well. So just helping to change those laws are definitely a big way to help our shark conservation world. You're so right that voting is, is critical to getting your opinion and voice heard. So so your work, Kali, is is obviously directly contributing to us learning more about human impacts on sharks. Can you tell us more about your thesis? Yeah, so the <clears throat> the area that I went to was an island called Key Kalker. It's just right off Belize. And there is a site there called Shark Ray Village. And that is a specific area where they feed nurse sharks and southern stingrays. And they're they're all in the wild. It's not like an enclosed area. It's right off of their very reef actually. So it's very, very nice area. Tour guides take tourists there. It's a big tourist attraction, probably one of the biggest tourist attractions on that island. It's a very small island, by the way, like five miles long. It's Jeez. very, I don't know what that is in kilometers, but maybe like two kilometers, something like that. Yeah. So, so, yes. we, so just as a quick aside, we watched the video uh, or your interview. Looks amazing. It's like an idyllic paradise, isn't it? Oh my gosh, it's that was just the most chilled out I think I've ever been in my life. Like, <laughs> I, even though I was researching the whole island, the, old, 
the island slogan was go slow. Like if you were walking too uh, fast, someone would be like, slow down. Like, <laughs> is it? But yes, yeah, it was a, the perfect place to do research in for sure. Wow. But, um, but yeah, so they go there and they feed them. And what I wanted to find out was if they, if not necessarily positive or negative effects, I just wanted to know how it was affecting the nurse sharks there. I focused on the nurse sharks. Not the Southern Stingrays, that's a whole different project that could be done. <laughs> yeah, right. But um, yeah, so what I did, basically the questions I was asking was, what was their behavior being modified? Were they modifying their behavior based on you know the presence of boats and the presence of food? And I also wanted to know if they were being habituated to the area. So habituated just means a they're regularly coming back to the area because they know um that they're going to get food or that they know they're going to get some reward so it's based it, animals will predictably aggregate to an area if they're habituated so we know that the nurse sharks are going to come here because there's food here um <clears throat> and i also kind of wanted to know if there were other nurse sharks around the area or you know in different reefs outside of the specific site so what I did was for the behavior, I conducted some behavior surveys. So that was all in water. They were about an hour survey. We'd sometimes go there like two to three times a day. Um, and a lot of my work was based off of video. So we would have surveyors in the water using GoPros and the GoPros would be the eyes. So they would just be scanning the area. And what I did was record how many times I saw certain behaviors. So little behaviors that nurse sharks do, excuse me, <clears throat> uh, milling. So they'll swim around in a circle or they'll just like actively swim straight lines everywhere. And I also looked at aggression behaviors. So aggression between nurse sharks uh, and aggression between uh, nurse sharks and stingrays. And I also wanted to see how they were interacting with humans. So I looked to see how many times they were uh, initiating that interaction. So not necessarily like a shark or a shark, a human touching a shark or like a human jumping on a shark, which I did see a couple of times. Mm -hmm. um, oh. Yes, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but more of like, what was the shark doing to initiate that uh, contact with the human? So basically what I found was that they are modifying their behavior to maximize their resource, which is the food. Mm -hmm. So food for sharks is you know sharks just live to eat basically yeah. <laughs> so if they're gonna and sharks are also for lack of a better word kind of lazy so they won't they don't always breach the water to grab a seal or they usually like to go for the sick the sick animals and the um the easy meals so yeah. this is an easy meal for the nurse shark so they definitely like coming to this area because it's a resource that they have easy access to but the reason that they know that they are getting you know access to this food is because of the boat sound so the sound of the engine to them is very similar to a dinner bell to us oh. like a yeah so the sound of the engine um it makes sense because while the tour guides are feeding the sharks they leave the engine on so to the sharks engine while they're feeding they're correlating that to food and also sharks have that electro reception and they use like auditory um auditory senses to capture their food or to detect their food so they're using all those senses 
and all their senses are saying food when they hear and feel that boat engine. Um, so yeah, and also nurse sharks specifically are nocturnal. So they're supposed to be active mm -hmm. and eat at night. And I don't know if there are any nurse sharks in Australia, but the nurse sharks here in um, Florida and around Belize, usually you'll find them during the day sleeping under rocks. They'll like cram themselves under a coral or under this big rock and they'll just sleep all day. And then at night they'll swim around and they'll eat. Well, these sharks in Shark Ray Village are doing the complete opposite. So they are very active during the day, eating during the day, swimming around during the day. Um, I didn't do any night surveys, but it is less likely that they are still being active at night. Um, but I, I call my research kind of a preliminary study because there's so much more that can be learned and that can be done from what I found. Um, so specifically like with the night stuff, we don't really know if they're going out to get food at night because who knows, maybe they're getting enough food to eat um, or to live from this specific provisioning site and they don't really need to do anything at night and they're just chilling. Also that kind of raises some concern for like energy and metabolism, like are they getting enough to sustain their, uh, the amount of energy that they're putting out because they are swimming around a lot more than a normal nurse shark probably would during the day. But yes, again with the boats, the, we saw a problem with them connecting that engine noise with the food. So they would actually get super close to the engines because, you know, it means food to them. And unfortunately, some of them were getting hit by the propellers. So we saw propellers strike wounds on a number of sharks there. And that's definitely an issue uh, for their health and well-being and their overall fit fitness um, because, you know, that could definitely lead to issues with swimming, they probably have to exert a whole lot more energy to swim because their fins are not as hydrodynamic as they were before. Uh, and also, you know, infection, because we did see some with wounds directly on their bodies, not just their fins. But yeah, and let's see, what was the other thing? Habituation. For this study, I actually would go out and set up a camera in Shark Ray Village before any other tour boats got there. So funny story, we actually would, <laughs> we would park our boat at a nearby reef that was probably a solid like 100 meters away from <laughs> Shark Ray Village. So I had to like take my equipment and swim it out there. <laughs> oh, wow. And because we knew that the boat sound would make all the sharks wake up and, you know, come into the area, which is what I didn't want. I wanted there to be, you know, nothing. Uh, and then I wanted to catch what they were doing as soon as boats started coming into the area. So, oh yeah. And then after I saw that hammerhead, it was a little more, you know, nervous while I was swimming over there. But, <laughs> um, but yeah. So basically, what I saw was their numbers definitely increased as soon as a boat arrived. So I would time when the boat would arrive, and then kind of do little time intervals before the boat arrives. So imagine a graph where the line is kind of slowly going up and it would peak where the boat arrives and then it would either stay stable or it would kind of dip and go down right after the boat arrived. So it was very clear that as soon as boats came into the area, sharks came to the area, um, which also goes back to they are habituated to the sound of that engine. So they are hearing that engine and immediately coming to the area. From where? I don't know yet. <laughs> uh. But they're just, they could just be appearing now. Uh, they're probably, 
I, I assume that they were sleeping somewhere along the reef because the barrier reef, the barrier reef was literally like maybe 25 meters like west of us or east of us and um most likely they were and there's a bunch of little patch reefs and like little coral gardens so i assume that they were sleeping they sleep over there and then as soon as they hear those boats they come to the area and get their meals um but yeah and then i also tried to look to see if there were other sharks you know with in nearby reefs outside of the area this is let's see I didn't use like a bruv, which is usually what researchers use. It's a baited remote underwater video. Uh, I just set up like a tripod camera underwater and left it there for an hour in a reef area to see if sharks would swim by. Um, and I actually saw zero nurse sharks. Oh, what? <laughs> yes, there were zero nurse sharks on all my video. I thought I would get at least one. Um, there's a whole <laughs> lot of different factors in that. Like maybe the nurse sharks outside of the area are actually regular nocturnal nurse sharks and they just are not moving around during the day um or you know i the camera range was bad you know they just couldn't undetected basically but still that kind of is like there's definitely a very large concentration of nurse sharks in this in shark ray village compared to uh, sites outside of shark ray village so and you know it it's like i said more of a preliminary study but we definitely want to know if that's having any impacts on the reefs around like are the reef the fish abundance is it different is it like more harmful for the reefs like are the fish there eating up everything because there's no nurse sharks to keep them in check things like that yeah that's oh heaps gosh, gosh the, yeah i can see where they would have yeah. taken a year um, oh yeah <laughs> so much to do yeah and as you say there's always more there's always more you can study um but i just wanted to i wanted to ask um two questions one was um firstly were the nurse sharks anticipating the boats like were they starting to hang around at times that they knew the boats were coming <laughs> i don't know if sharks can tell time so maybe that's a dumb <laughs> question and then no. secondly like i don't I, you you touched on the point that sharks are super important to the ecosystem and that you know shark population um shark populations going down will actually be a very bad thing for the ocean in general could you elaborate right. on that as, a little bit as well um so i actually learned that this site was a provisioning site for about 15 years so these sharks have had a lot of time to learn that this is an area that they're going to get fed so most likely they are, they do anticipate the boats. They know that this is an area that we're probably going to get fed. And honestly, I've actually wanted to reach out to some of the boat operators in Belize because, you know, they went on shutdown for like a month and no boats were going out. And I was like, oh my gosh, what are these sharks doing? I wonder yeah. <laughs> if they're like, oh my gosh, we're starving. Um, I actually, that, just reminded myself that I need to reach out to them but um most likely they are anticipating the boats are there but they definitely know that the engine noise right. means um means food no matter what engine it is like it's it could just be a boat passing by that's a little kind of nearby near enough where they could hear it and they all would just like swim around like oh where it is where is it we know there's food coming and then once they realize there's no food coming they just kind of chill and then sit until they hear another boat engine so 
Yeah, so then in regards to the importance of sharks, so sharks are kind of like some of the cleanup crew of the ocean. So sharks keep our oceans balanced. So they're the ones who are eating all the sick and injured and like sickly fish or mammals and things like that. So they kind of help keep those populations in check and they just overall keep balance in our oceans. Like if we take away sharks, it would just, everything would go into chaos in the oceans basically. Like everything would probably, um, a lot of prey populations would overpopulate and we don't want overpopulations of their prey populations because usually they're the ones eating something else. They're also important um, in the trophic network, like in the food chain. Yeah, and too many top predators, or not top, but you know, too many of their prey populations could definitely decimate other populations of their prey as well. So sharks keep our oceans balanced. And usually if there are sharks in the area, you know that that ecosystem is probably healthy. I mean, so for so many years, sharks have been demonized and I and I think I, I I think I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about how much damage Steven Spielberg did in one movie. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, yeah. Have you, have you heard the same sort of thing, Connie? Yes, I have heard that. Um and I mean we can't frame it all on him, but it definitely <laughs> definitely back then, immediate like in that immediate time when that movie came out, it's Definitely, I'm pretty sure some people went out and was like, oh, we got to kill all the sharks. They're going to eat us. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but, you know, just more awareness and more education is also what will help shark conservation. The more people know that sharks are, and I feel like nowadays people are starting to kind of realize sharks are important and not as scary as they think. These shark movies, sometimes they just, they kill me. <laughs> I, uh, I can imagine somebody who, who works in this area and you go and you hear like a movie like Meg or, you know, Jaws and oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's so bad for the species. And <laughs> I know um, the Meg movie specifically made me angry only because I had read the book series and the book series is like amazing. Like it's a, it's a really, really good book series. And then the movie was just kind of like an entertainment thing when the book series was really more horror and like a, like dramatic. And I was expecting the movie to be the same, but I was very disappointed. Yeah, gosh. I, but I, I mean, I'm, I definitely agree with you. I really get the sense that people are, there's a general knowledge and respect for sharks these mm -hmm. days and an appreciation that they are really as you as you were saying like such a critical part of the of the food chain um and I, so something else i just want to touch on um is is chumming chumming the waters which which happens i don't know if it's allowed in the u.s but it's certainly allowed in south africa and australia um for tourists to come and cage dive um with great whites i think i think great whites maybe are the only sharks they do this with maybe not maybe not um, mm -hmm. Does that do you, do you know like what are your thoughts on chumming the waters for for tourism? Yeah, so I don't think it happens here in Florida. I yeah, I think it's illegal here in Florida. Um, maybe in other parts of the United States it might be legal, but definitely illegal here. But um, there's actually a paper not too long ago on 
white shark cage diving and chumming and to see how it affected their behavior. And they really kind of concluded that it's not going, it doesn't really affect them unless it's super, super long-term in a very specific spot, you know? And I don't really know like how the, <clears throat> how the areas in, you know, the different spots in Australia or South Africa are, but yeah, they did that study and they were like, well, nothing really happened. They didn't change their behavior. And I was like, huh. And it was surprising to me, honestly, because yeah. Yeah. you would think that chumming the water and feeding these animals um, would cause them to look at the boats like, oh, you got food for me or look at humans like, oh, like, where's the food? But yeah, and this this was a couple years ago. The study was. But um, and who knows, maybe they found something else <laughs> later on. But I think that if it's if it is like long term and in a specific space, you are going to start seeing changes in that ecosystem or at least with those um, with those target animals. And it's never good to um, as long as you're not in like a populated area, like if you're chumming and there's like a beach not too far away, that's probably Probably not, not a, a good idea. idea. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not a good idea. And I definitely no. would, I frown upon that for sure. Um, and it's like, you know, I don't like saying like, this is bad for the sharks or, you know, like demonizing certain things, but, you know, it's definitely going to have an effect on them if, um, if it starts negatively affecting humans. So if you get a shark attack in an area where they regularly are chumming sharks, then you know that's going to look bad on the shark <laughs> no one's really going to think about the fact that you know they're getting fed in that area um something similar happened around here in florida i think someone got attacked by um like multiple sharks actually and they were like big tiger sharks i don't think the person like died or anything but they were going to areas of the like they bit areas of the person that a diver would have food on them so they bit the hand and then they actually bit her butt <laughs> because the yeah because the divers would have the food in their uh, back pockets or you know on the sides of them um, so things like that definitely are not good for the humans as well as the sharks because you look at the sharks like wow these sharks really just went and ate up this person it's like no they really it's not 100% their fault. They just were looking for food the way that they always do because that's all they want to do is eat. <laughs> yeah, right. And once they realize it's a human, you know, they they usually spit you out and go along their way. But, um, but yeah, so the chumming, I think it's fine in certain areas where it's not, you know, concentrated and also in non-populated areas. That, yeah. yeah. And and just I also just something I was kind of curious to get your thoughts on, like how many people are killed in shark attacks every year, like versus how many people are killed by cows? Cows? <laughs> I don't even know the exact same the exact number, but I know that you're very much more likely to get killed by a cow, <laughs> and, or even like a falling. What is it? I think it's Coconut. like a vending machine falling on you. Oh, a vending, a vending machine. machine? <laughs> yes. Oh my god. That's my favorite one. That's my favorite one. But, and then, you know, people like to argue like, well, if you're not in the ocean, of course, like you're not, you're less likely to get killed by a shark. But I'm like, when you're in the ocean, usually there's a shark nearby 
but you're going to be fine. Like you're every time you're in the ocean, do you get attacked by a shark? You know, it's, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. But yeah, you're definitely way more likely to get killed by anything else besides a shark. Yeah. And it's usually, you know, bad place, bad time. Sure. If, you're, and, if you are. <laughs> and as you say, they, they probably like testing you out and then realize, oh, wait, you're a human. No, thanks. Exactly. And like people think sharks will just swim up to you. Sharks do not like, like they look at us like we're aliens. <laughs> like we are these, they also kind of look at us as predators. They're kind of like, oh, what is this? This other thing that's not small. Like we're, we're not small to them, even though they're very large to us. But, you know, we're not, as, we're bigger than a lot of their prey. So they look at us as like another predator and they usually do not want anything to do with us yeah. <laughs> which is why you need which is why a lot of people use chum and food to get sharks out it's a way to you know make them the reverse shy behavior like they're naturally shy elusive avoid us but food natural or food will um reverse that behavior so because wow. you know like i said they they like food yeah <laughs> that's yeah. all they live for <laughs> i remember seeing this image of a beach in sydney somewhere uh, where it was like everybody enjoying their life on the beach. And I imagine it's mm -hmm. similar to Florida where everybody's on the beach pretty much every day of the year. And yeah. they're just like, just off the beach, like not that far away. It was like <laughs> all these sharks just hanging out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it was one of those yeah, like drone like, shots, you know. Yeah. And, you know, they stay away because they like, all oh, those people are there. I do not want to go there. Like, And here in Florida, we actually get black tip migrations. Uh, they're huge, like, thousands and thousands of sharks just migrate um i think it's like in the winter and super early spring and these sharks are like what 100 yards offshore like <laughs> barely and there's they do nothing they don't yeah. come anywhere near the beach or anywhere near humans yeah but it's a bit of an, yeah. bit of like an irrational fear yeah exactly yeah, yeah. So, Carly, this, this year has been many things with climate change-induced bushfires in Australia and as well as all around the world, and obviously mm -hmm. COVID-19, which is still raging for us all over the place. Florida's on fire as well. So. Oh, really? Oh, and I, I, saw, I saw Amazon's <laughs> on fire, the Amazon's on fire again as well. So it's like, oh, jeez. Oh, um, 2020, it'll be but I mean one one positive thing that's come out of the year is well at least for us personally we're very grateful for the opportunity to have learned more about black experiences and how you know we as white people have contributed to systemic racism around the world and yeah. we we realized that we don't often have or see black people of or people of color in our um, in our conservation searches to be guests on our show which was a bit of a wake-up call for us and a realization that we were not looking hard enough, <laughs> um, which is actually ridiculous because the majority of conservation efforts in South Africa and Africa are led and executed by black people. So we, we loved the, um, the black in nature and related hashtags, which is actually how we found you. And um, so we were really keen to just uh, get your, to hear your journey, to maybe you could share your journey of, um, of being the black woman in conservation. What were some of the, the barriers for you and also on the flip side what were some of the things that made the career path easier for you yeah that's yeah it's just so awesome that you know you guys are recognizing that for one because <laughs> not a lot of people do but um yeah so 
growing up, I looked at Shark Week and I never saw anyone that looked like me ever. And I always knew I was like, I'm going to be the first black woman to be on Shark Week or something like I'm sure that's happened already. But <laughs> like that was always my goal. I It deters some people, you know, it can discourage some people not um, being in a space where there's people that look like you. But I think I also mentioned that I was a swimmer. And that is also a, I was always the only black person on my swim teams, uh, if I wasn't on like an all black swim team. But as I got older, I was always the only one, wow. <laughs> usually at swim meets, usually definitely on all my swim teams. In college, there was maybe one or two other black people on my team, and then they graduated, and then I was the only one. So my whole life, I've really been <laughs> like the only one in my field, and um I, it definitely didn't discourage me. It was, if anything, I would say that the fact that I was the only one did make my career path easier for me personally, like in my uh, mental state, because I was like, I got to keep going. Like, I can't just stop here. <laughs> I got to keep going. I got to be that rep representation that uh, I didn't have when I was younger. Um, but some of the barriers that I, I, thankfully, I have not had huge issues uh, in my field or in um, just in academics in general. Um, but just one thing that always really like kind of irritated me <laughs> was when I would do a lot of presentations, uh, just like scientific outreach with my job and things like that. And I'd have a lot of those older white people come up to me and be like, wow, you're so articulate. Like you speak so well. I'm mm -hmm. like, am I not uh, supposed to? <laughs> exactly. And it's like, you know, some people think that that's a compliment, but it's also like, why is that a compliment? Like, why are you so surprised that I speak so well? Yeah. Um, so that was, that's definitely something that's been, um, that I constantly encountered in my, uh, in my field, but nothing, or nothing that was super scarring or like, oh my gosh, like racist. <laughs> but um, yeah, and then thankfully, I also had a very, very supportive family. And um, they pushed me, <laughs> they made sure they supported me in everything that I did. They were like, all right, like, you're probably gonna encounter these issues, but we've got your back. And um, with a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of financial barriers and with uh, minorities in this field because you have to pay for a lot of experience. And I was just blessed to have parents that were able to, you know, get the money to uh, be able to get me experience and to put me through school and things like that. But that is not the majority of Black women in this uh, field at all. But that was definitely things that made my career path a lot easier, my supportive family. The, uh, the fact that I was the only one kind of just pushed me to keep going. Um, but yeah, so that's about, <laughs> that's my journey so far. <laughs> and, and now we also understand that through these hashtags, you were able to find other black women who are also shock scientists, which is incredible. Yes. And together you founded Miss. Could you share yes. more on how this connection happened and what Miss is? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I like finding another black woman in shark science, it was like finding a unicorn. <laughs> uh, and I, like I've gotta say, we were I was so excited. I was like, oh my gosh, there's more oh my goodness. I was like, there's someone else. <laughs> um so basically I think it was the black in nature hashtag. 
we I can't remember how exactly we uh, specifically connected, but I know Catherine, uh, she was one of my uh, mentors, one of my advisors on my thesis committee. She had commented on something and was like, oh my gosh, like, and she, I think she added me, like tagged me in something and was like, oh, here's another black woman in shark science. I was like, another. And she had tagged me in a post by Jasmine, <laughs> and uh, which is one of the other co-founders. And I was like, what? Like, there's another girl? <laughs> Shark science? Oh, my goodness. And then Jasmine was like, oh, my gosh, we should start a club. <laughs> we were like, okay, let's do it. So then we found um, Jada. She does the animal facts on TikTok and posts them to Twitter as well. Her cool. fun animal facts. Oh, my gosh, she's so funny. But And then Amani was... Uh, someone else who worked with Catherine and is going to be a, fe a fellow with field school Miami they're down here in Miami and they do field research shark research um, but yeah so then we were like all right we made a little group twitter message thing and then we all met on zoom and we uh we all kind of went through and talked about our experiences in the field and we all basically came to the conclusion that one we were unimaginably excited to find other black women that were shark scientists <laughs> like we all we were all just like oh my gosh like I can't believe this like oh and then um we also concluded that we wanted to change that we were like we don't want to always feel we didn't want to always feel alone we experience what it feels like to be alone in, a, in this field and also what it feels like to find someone else who looks like you who probably shares similar experiences with you which was super exciting because it's like you know I can't talk to I mean like I can but you know it's not as easy to talk to my white friends and just tell, talk about how like sometimes it's mentally taxing being in a all-white space sometimes and um, it's easier when there's other people around who look like you who share those experiences so we were like all right let's let's do something with this we're all together what can we do and we were like all right next zoom meeting we're going to figure out a name for us <laughs> so we figured out a name we were like all right minorities in shark science miss so that's how miss was born and then so we got cool. like a whole we got someone to make a logo for us so this all literally happened within two weeks i think we met for the first time and then two weeks later we uh, announced uh, the creation of Miss. So basically, yeah, within two weeks. And then, fun fact: we all have never met each other in real life. <laughs> this is so, happening in COVID, right? <laughs> yes. Well, COVID, and we're all so Amani and Jada are on the West Coast. Right. Jada's in Washington right now, doing uh, just starting grad school. And then Amani is she was in San Diego. I don't know where she is right now, but I know she was on the West Coast. That's where she lives is San Diego. And Jasmine is in Sarasota, Florida, which is like probably about three hours west of me. Um, but yeah, so we are all scattered <laughs> across the United States. So we we're doing all of this virtually. <laughs> And going back to, to the barriers to a career in conservation, MISS is there to help young aspiring scientists of color to come up against less of these barriers. And on the flip side of that, thinking about your career and based on what I've read about the other women founders of MISS, um, and, and you've already mentioned you had amazing family support, um, you, you all had support or someone to help mentor you guys and make your, you know, help you make your way. Um, exactly. 
So trying to think about ways to get more women of color into conservation sciences, as well as, as, well as other important careers, of course, would, exactly. would your recommendation be for those of us with white privilege and or success to put effort into targeted mentorship and support? Yes, for sure. So I always say that as soon as you realize that there's a problem and you start acknowledging your white privilege, like you're already, you're already doing good. Like you're already um, starting to, you know, for lack of a better word, become an ally. <laughs> um, but so we just on our Miss website, we actually just launched our Miss like membership information page. So basically it's a page where people can go and see all of these women of color, see what they're doing in shark science, things like that. And um, their emails are there so people can reach out. And uh, we, do, we do plan on starting a mentorship program actually to connect our members of Miss, which are just women of color, uh, varied backgrounds. Um, usually they're, I think they're like in undergrad or graduate school. And basically, we're going to be starting a mentorship program to um, connect them with people in this field that can help them succeed, that are uh, that share that share similar interests. And we want to be that uh, what is it called, like middleman to you know help create those mentorships and hopefully create like long-lasting re uh, professional relationships and maybe even some <laughs> positions down the line. But yeah, so we. Um, I think uh, we're going to be announcing something soon where <laughs> we can, where you, where people can you know utilize their white privilege and um, <clears throat> help out all of our members at Miss. So yeah, very cool. From a financial perspective, folks can also donate to Miss to help. Yes, as well. Yeah, for sure. So we have donations coming in. We always have our donate button in our website. Um, we have a Patreon site as well. So if you want to give a donation every month, that's possible. Um, we have, and if you check out our Twitter, we have a lot of different fundraising things going on, especially this week. We have a scavenger hunt happening on Sunday. We have someone making shirts for us that you can buy and they're uh, putting those proceeds towards Miss. Um, so yeah, there's just like a bunch of different ways that, um, and it's still crazy to me that this all just started in June and, you know, we're so cool. <laughs> got all this stuff going crazy, but, but yeah, so there's, yeah, definitely check out our Twitter and our Instagram. There's a whole lot of, uh, ways that people can donate or just participate in a lot of the things that we're doing. Very cool. Holly, I wanted to know what's next for you. you you've just defended your thesis what are you doing for the rest of 2020? Yeah, so I am just doing some job hunting. Okay. <laughs> so I, I work like part-time. My I'm very busy. I work part-time jobs, so the turtle stuff is part-time. So I do want to get into like a full-time research position somewhere or just a full-time job anywhere, really. <laughs> but um, definitely love field work, and I just want to stay in the field. Um, but I definitely am doing a, I have, we have Miss in general and me in general have a lot of outreach planned for the rest of this year. So we are just getting our faces out there showing that, um, you know, just showing that there are black women in this field doing some real work and uh, just being that representation. And um, we 
definitely are trying to collaborate with different programs and trying to, you know, bring more opportunities to minorities in different areas. So we don't want to just like stay in one area. We want to try and expand and, you know, virtually, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and then next year we have our workshop in March and April. So we have two workshops where we're going to be taking nine. Uh, well, a total of 18 uh, students on a weekend shark research trip. So we'll be learning a lot of different field work, stuff about sharks, stuff about marine science in general. Um, and actually the donations, I, actually, I forgot to mention that, but donations are going towards our uh, workshop program. So basically we are making this completely free for our participants. So it's gonna be a whole application process. It won't be like, oh, everyone just come. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so what, like, like we said, that financial bar barrier, we want to break that. So we're gonna be covering their travel. We're gonna be covering their stay on the boat um, and just make sure that they're getting this experience without having to give us anything. So we want to just make sure we are the on the giving side and we don't want to um, take from anyone and for sure want to make this whole experience process easier for um, early career scientists in general because I feel like early career scientists, people coming right out of undergrad, I was lost <laughs> when I first came out of undergrad and we want to help make that transition easier um, out of undergrad and even out of grad school so yeah that's really cool and one of the one of our favorite questions um, to ask guests is if you could have one message truly heard by everybody on the planet what would it be Ooh, that's a hard one <laughs> <laughs> have one single message for everyone maybe it's not the one message but one thing I just like telling people is like you know, if there's, if you see something that you're passionate about and that you want to do and you don't see anyone in that field that looks like you or that you can um, look up to, just your goal should not be, or you shouldn't be discouraged. Don't get discouraged. Your goal should be that representation. Your goal should be, if there's no one who's done it before, you could be the first person to do it. Um, and just also just keep passion. <laughs> I think a lot of people in the field lose passion or just lose their drive and it just becomes like a job. Um, but I think passion is so important in everything. No, even shark science, not even only shark science, just in general, um, keep the passion going and always, um, try to be that representation, even if you don't have that <laughs> representation currently. And for anyone listening out there who would like to get involved in, conservation as a career, um, what advice would you give them? I would say that if it's um, anything like a, if it's marine science in general or just like conservation in general, just do your research and also get your foot in the door in different places, try different things. For me, I tried lab work, I tried field work. I realized I did not like lab work and I liked field work. Some people it's completely different. They like office work and staying in a lab and they hate being outside. So for sure, just try everything. When you're young, you literally the world is your oyster. You can go out, <laughs> try different things, figure out what kind of conservation, um, 
you like and um then just go from there and for sure just keep keep giving yourself experience just and it doesn't even have to be like you're paying for experience just going out in nature is experience in itself <laughs> to realize if you really like being outside as a part of conservation because conservation definitely can be done from the office standpoint but <laughs> also volunteering I was a volunteer before uh, at the job that I currently work at they um they have a huge volunteer program and I actually started out as a volunteer so volunteer is another way to get uh, experience and also kind of start building your career in conservation as well okay wise wise words aside from donations to miss is there any other way listeners could help support you uh, in shark conservation uh, for example any do you have any favorite conservation organizations you could recommend yeah, so there is an a conservation organization in Florida called Save the Sharks, and um, they are, I believe, a nonprofit, so they definitely take donations as well. Um, and then there is the Marsai Lace program at Moat Marine Lab. That's where Jasmine works, actually. She's project coordinator there. Um, they also uh, take support and donations and things like that. And I can also shout out my own job, Gumbo Limbo. <laughs> we run off of donations as well. Um, and we, and those go towards directly conservation, not even just like sea turtles in general, but just marine conservation. So Gumbo Limbo, uh, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, it's, it's a nature center, so. Great, thanks, Carly. We'll, we'll be sure to add the, the links to the show notes so that um, listeners can support your work and those organizations too. And just broadly, thank you so much for, for your time. It's been really cool to hear your story and your experience and inspiring. I hope there's listeners out there who listen to this and are inspired by it because I think it's really cool. So thank you so much for your time and, and all the important work you do for sharks who are not demons and are actually just really cool, curious creatures. <laughs> they are. They're like, I sometimes I think of them as like little puppies. They really don't. They're just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're just like, I don't know, swimming around and being sharks and, you know, I don't know. They, they're not out to get us. <laughs> and I'm biased because I just think some of them are super cute. So, <laughs> but thank you guys for having me. This is really cool. <laughs> I love that you guys are trying to amplify our voices. So thank you for that as well. <laughs> thank you, Kali. And thank you for, for being that representation. Wow, that was such a fascinating discussion. We loved learning about sharks. Have you ever seen a shark in real life? What was your reaction? Do you agree that they are beautiful and majestic? We certainly do and are so inspired by the work that Carly and the Miss co-founders do to change the game on these important creatures of the sea. We are also so grateful to Carly for sharing her experience as a black woman in conservation. Clearly there is a lot more we can all do to move the needle on inclusion in conservation and other important fields. As always, thank you for listening and we will catch you next time.